You're listening to Hey, and welcome to the Good Pop Culture Club. We are here at episode 50. I can't do air horns. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told they sound like a dying like whale or a seal. Like I mean, I can hear the air. It's like a it's more of a pew pew than a, a pew pew pow pow whatever. <laughs> yes. This is going to be our outro, right? All of our like sound. <laughs> no, nah, I'm keeping this in the intro. It's a cause for celebration that we made it through 50 episodes, um, a little bit over a year of this culture club. My question, Marvin, is: Does this podcast end when the pandemic ends? I don't know. Will the Never. pandemic ever end? I don't think it will. <gasps> dun, dun, oh, that's right. Oh, now I'm both sad and a little happy. <laughs> I mean, uh, that just means that, you know, if things get better, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. If things get better, that only means there's more good pop. And where there's good pop, there will be the Good Pop Culture Club. That's true. That is our promise to you for Amen. now. <laughs> My name is Marvin Yue, and joining me to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days, we have self-proclaimed professional Asian-American Jess Jew. Hey, Jess. What up? Are you still on hiatus? Hi Are you again. still on... White girl sabbatical? I haven't officially started, but I think like mentally I'm there. Um, and then physically I'll be there in like two weeks. Mm. Right now we're at the end or towards the end of, I mean, according to LA or California, the end of the pandemic is coming June 15th, right? That was just announced today, you know? Yeah. I don't know if pandemics listen to government decrees, um, but I think that, I mean, they're going to open things yeah, in they've, Jan- June. Yeah. I mean, all I know is I'm still going to wear a mask and, you know, take a shower every time I go out. I'm, I mean, I'm also just not going to be going out much because my job, you know, is work from home anyway. So I'm just <laughs> going to be distrustful of humans for a few more months, at least. That sounds like a good plan. Um, that voice, of course, is our very own professional culture editor, Han Win. Hey, Han. Hi. Yes. Uh, where I work, we also have a science and health desk. And so I'm constantly reading all the stories about the variants and questions like, will the lockdown end? Or why can't my 40-year-old son, who is my caregiver, get a vaccine? You know, so there are just so many things that I'm just like, there's maybe a reason why I'm a bit doom and gloom. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm making a list of my responsible friends and irresponsible friends. Yeah, there's only, like, it's a very tight number, like, you know. Which is fine with me. Um, I, I think there's no reason for me to take extra risks. Um, I'm very curious about, because my job, uh, what the first real events I will be invited to. I was invited to a screening in a screening room. Oh, and, wow. you know, what? I did say fuck that. But um, <laughs> they also knew that, you know, they were like, and we will also give you a link if you prefer. So I was like, yeah. But also it was like way over the hill. And at this point, Working from home, I can't actually go to screenings um, over the hill without losing hours of my day. And uh, since I am actually an editor and do a lot of work on the computer, I, there's just no way I can miss that much time. Yeah, the path to, I mean, we're never going back to normal again, right? So whatever normal becomes in the future, it's going to be different than what we know before. I don't know. I think collectively, um, especially like Americans have a very short memory attention span um i think and and then 
it's unfortunate because, you know, the way privilege and class and medical racism and everything works, the people in power who are dictating these changes or what goes back to, quote, normal or not normal are probably the ones who are least affected and have been the least affected by the pandemic, right? They were like inconvenienced. You know, everyone had a hard time this last year, but it's like, okay, we want to go back to school or like, you know, like. I can go to this and like, you know, everyone's homeschooled tough, but that's still a very different thing than like, I lost like four family members and like, I've been putting my life at risk for the last year or like, I personally got sick of COVID and I'm dealing with like long-term repercussions. So it's like, obviously the effects are not equal, right? Felt equally. Um, So it's just like the very cynical part of me is like, oh yeah, like the ones who were least affected are going to be the ones dictating how we go back to normal and we should not do that because we can't we should not go back to normal there was a lot of shit that didn't work doesn't work and we should try to address that yeah normal is what got us here in the first place right yeah Yeah. i mean and also like you know this last year has kind of proven that there was a lot of ways we could have made things more accessible and a little more open for everybody and they just didn't want to We just didn't want to. I will include myself in that. <laughs> so, you know, going forward, I think it, it is kind of nice. Like, I I like some of, some of these things do should just be virtual events. Like, I don't need to get my ass across and pay 30 bucks for parking in Santa Monica for some of these things. Or find street parking. Find street parking in K-Town. I don't, I don't <laughs> need to do that again. Uh... Sit through a bad improv show and, like, hey. <laughs> to get to the improv show I want to go see. <laughs> huh. Well. On today's episode of the Good Pop Culture Club, we continue our Oscar season catch-up. This week, we watched the Academy Award-nominated film Nomadland, uh, directed by Chloe Zhao. Uh, but before we get to our discussion of Nomadland, let's find out what pop culture is beginning through the week. Han, what's popping? Okay, so in my uh, busyness, I sort of fell off reading sci-fi in the last maybe decade or so, so... Um, I picked, started picking up the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, uh, who's an acclaimed sci-fi fantasy author, and um, I'm really digging it. This trilogy, she did an unprecedented thing with every single book in this trilogy winning the Hugo Award. So it was three oh, years in a row. Damn. Wow. Three years in a row, three books in a row, um, she won it. And uh, also, she is the first Black author to have won the Hugo award for her novel um so just a quick sort of rundown of the first book because i only just finished it today and looking forward to the next two um but it's called the fifth season and basically there's this in this sort of alternate you know subcontinent world called uh the subcontinent is called the stillness there um are many different like casts of course uh this is she's very good at sort of illustrating how the inequities between people. Um, and there's a group of people na- known as the origins or origins who have the ability to literally um, shake the earth or, or quiet the earth, depending. So they can control the power in the earth, which you would think would make them super powerful. Um, but they are actually uh, sort of enslaved, harnessed, um, controlled by another group of people and so the main character, when we meet her, she is an origin who has hidden her powers. Um, she comes home and this is not necessarily a spoiler. This is actually in the blurb. She finds her um, toddler son dead 
And this is also the beginning <gasps> of the end of the world because the reason why it's called the fifth season is every few hundred years or so, um, the earth goes through, or the world, I don't know if earth is the right word, but the world goes through uh, a fifth season where it gets destroyed pretty much. <laughs> and so everything has to start all over again. And um, very few people can actually survive this. So um, I, I assume some of them have to survive so they know what the fifth season even is. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, just the cast, this, the way people are used, just everything's more surprising. I don't want to give anything away by telling you too much about it. Um, but I've been listening to it on audiobook which has been great because then you get someone who is probably of african descent who can probably pronounce them um in a way that i wouldn't have just by reading the words um so yeah i'm digging it so far i'm very curious about where it goes um and it's also has some uh very lgbtq friendly themes in there yeah, I've been reading a lot more uh, speculative fiction by Asian authors because of my, my book club, Books in Boba. And it's just been refreshing to see like the potential of like genre fiction through the eyes and pens of like writers of color, right? Because they're able to capture things like um, oppression, marginalization, um, class in a way that like us as people of color can also relate to, which is really has been really cool. Yeah, and I think that's why I've always been drawn to um female uh sci-fi writers. Um Ursula K. Le Guin, I've mentioned many times, like was a huge influence on me growing up, but also um Octavia Butler, uh who is also a black author. Um so I I just the afrofuturism and stuff like that as far as what she's done to <laughs> the genre is just amazing. So that's why I was so excited to find you know, I say fine. She's been around for several years, um, N.K. Jemison, and realized that like I have another person I can like read all of her stuff and really enjoy. Have you been following the beef that's been going on in the literature oh world? Oh my god, yes, yes. And I've been yes. sipping my tea, eating my popcorn. <laughs> I have to say, um, as someone who has even mentioned, I believe, an author who did that exact thing. Because I was excited about her first series and the second series, I was like, hmm, what's all this Asian stuff in it? Um, <laughs> I remember it, it's just like, why? Why did you do that? You you made me actually dislike you because it's it's like fully taking on a an Asian culture and using it as a backdrop. And I don't understand why you would possibly do that, except it's always been done. Uh, Asian culture has both been used for ancient stuff and futuristic you know genres um just watch blade runner you know uh firefly you know all that type of stuff <laughs> so it's yeah uh that it's happening in the kid lit world oh, that just makes me sad i don't think i've read those um, oh i'm living for it because it's drama that i'm not a part of and i can to just watch as a spectator yes and also it's is... kid lit like come on <laughs> you know i i love seeing these authors who are mainly women that i've been seeing um really dig in and just call it out and i'm so happy oh yeah the fuck's given like they just you just know like they've been holding their tongues for so long and they're like you know what fuck this like i'm gonna i'm just gonna say it like it's can't you know it's the time let's have this conversation and it's good for them and I'm yeah very... and and they make a good point this is not just a because you know a fuck you you know 
stealing from my culture thing, but it's hello, racism causes violence. And so you're starting out with kids who are learning racist things because you're not like representing a community correctly. Like I just it's so annoying. So, yes, thank you for speaking out. Kid lit authors. Yeah. All right, Jess, what's popping with you? I have started season four of The Great Pottery Throwdown on HBO Max. It, they released all their episodes for the season in, uh, I think, April 1st. I've gotten through half of it. It's delightful as ever. They shot during quarantine. So, like, everyone's, like, extra sensitive, including, you know, nice Paul Hollywood, Keith Brimer Jones, <laughs> who is, like, the main judge of this competition. So, where Paul Hollywood is gross... This lovely man is very encouraging and cries. He cries when he's so moved by ceramics and pottery. It's lovely. And they all, I think all the contestants like have had to live together. So they're super extra nice. They're usually nice from a baseline, but they're even nicer this year. And they're even more like close knit as a family. Great characters. We got like the old pension, like lesbian. She's great. We got the young upstart who like does like ridiculous things like stays off the breach doesn't like tries crazy techniques and you're like will this work you got like the like middle-aged like mom character who like has terrible with time management and you're like oh Suze, uh it's just lovely i would highly recommend this show it's same vibes as great british bake-off it's not food though it is pottery but there's really cool stuff you can do with pottery i never knew who are you rooting for uh, yeah <laughs> Oh, definitely my butch, like, lesbian pensioner, Sal. We love her. She's, like, very... You can tell she's very technically good. Mm. And the very first elimination challenge they had was they had to create, like, a cheese plate, a cheese dome set. And she chose to make her little dogs as, like, the toppers for the pickle jar. So it was, like, themed around her dog. And literally her cheese plate said, like, my dog loves cheese. I'm just like, you're so sweet and I love you. Please be my grandma. (laughs) I'm glad for the reminder. I I was planning on watching it from the very beginning, and I haven't. But I definitely need another just lighthearted competition show to keep me occupied and not too depressed. What's popping with you, Marvin? Well, speaking of competition shows, it's back. Top Chef Season 18, Top Chef Portland. Um, And I guess this is where we introduce, or where I'll introduce my new segment. Um, It's a podcast within a podcast called Go Asian, where we (laughs) um, catch up on all the Asians on Top Chef and see how they're doing um, each week until they all get eliminated and we stop watching Top Chef. As okay. is the, Are we uh, allowed to participate in this, Marvin? Yeah. <laughs> Feel free. Uh, to go Asian. Well, first of all, you know, Top Chef is back. They're okay. important this year. This is the COVID edition of Top Chef. So they're all, you know, they have social distancing. They're living in the hotel. They're not doing the Mad Dash um, shopping sprees anymore. Now everything's ordered, I assume, on Amazon um, and delivered. Uh, this also means that I won't be sad seeing all the restaurants they're going to around LA, like the last season, <laughs> that I can't go to. And... I won't be sad when they win an, uh, a prize that they can't do anything with, like that attending the Trolls yeah. premiere. Or the Olympics. Uh, or the Olympics. Oh. Yeah. So, that was very sad. <laughs> so I'm already liking this season. I don't want to say more because I did. I, I felt like the LA season was a love letter to LA, but at the same time, it did make me sad. So this year they're in Portland. I forget how many chefs they have, but 
I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is the most diverse cast they've ever had on the show, right? I feel like for the first time, it's majority people of color. I think there's only like, what, four white people, four or five white people in the entire cast this year? It seems like that. And they did, when they introduced Portland as the city um, at the beginning of the show, they do mention because of it being a central city when it comes to the fight uh, with against racism. So um, I thought it was very interesting that they made that a point to talk about, but then they very clearly, you know, did that with the casting. It's interesting because I think the lack of white people make the few white people on this show super white. <laughs> it's like a contrast. Or, or it's like, at least like, it's like, <laughs> it's like, is your point of view food like very European, right? Because... <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's something about, I think Padma and Gail are now executive producers on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've kind of, I, I feel like they realized how underutilized Padma was, <laughs> like last season especially. Also and, you know, with her show. I mean, the last year, I feel like Padma, besides having her Hulu show uh, that shone a light on like all the different types of food cultures around America. But she's been so outspoken on social media about all the issues that we're facing uh, racially. And in a way, Chop Chef seeing her there just kind of feels like a continuation of my relationship of reading everything that she's been (laughs) posting. Oh, yeah. She's like very left as we love her. And... I think also the recent seasons of Top Chef, like uh, the the Louisville season where Chef Eric made it to the final three and then ended up being like limited number three. And there's like a whole discussion and I think really highlighted how like little representation some cuisines were getting. Right. And then, you know, there were many, many chefs in the Top Chef history of like white dudes cooking like Asian food and being like super fucking annoying about it and gross about it. Have you it. heard of fish sauce? It's amazing. Or the one <laughs> who's like, oh, I like, I have a Vietnamese boyfriend. So like, that guy <laughs> was just so classic that I don't want to say I loved it, but I was just also like, this is, I, I love that I can point to him and just being like, don't be that guy. Like, it's that. I mean, <laughs> yes, good TV, but you know, that's a very, also very long. <laughs> tradition we'll say in fine dining of a lot of white chefs getting accolades for making ethnic food and like the you know the originators of this ethnic food i'm using ethnic in quotes here (laughs) ethnic food like being shit on um also i'm like i'm keeping track of how many of these chefs are speaking up right now it's like come on guys (laughs) you doing anything yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but we have we have three contestants, Asian yeah. contestants this time. Um, we have um, which is Abishar, who is um, Bangladeshi American um, from Columbus, Ohio. We have Jamie Tran, who is Vietnamese American from Las Vegas, and we have Shota Nakajima from Seattle, who is. Um, so we have a Slack group that we're all a part of, and when Shota showed up, just I think. Like went crazy. I'm awesome. I'm in multiple like different threads, Slack, Instagram about Top Chef. I watched <laughs> multiple groups, and so I was. Um, I have live TV. My parents have not cut the cord yet, so I was watching live. <laughs> and all my other friends either watch later or delay or like the day after. So I was like, I won't spoil anything, but I will give you five bucks 
<laughs> if you can tell which one I'm in love with and who I want to keep in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> well, the pocket thing, that's too big of a hint right there. My my little my 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 short Japanese cuisine king. Let me keep you in my pocket. You're adorable. I love you. Please do well. <laughs> yeah, and all three of our Asians, you know, this is the Go Asian segment, um made it to judging on the top and the bottom, um, Shota made it to the top, and the other two, disappointingly, made it to the bottom. Spoiler, Marvin! Spoilers! This is the recap. We're recapping how they did. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, so if you haven't watched it yet, just forward, fast forward. I, I would have to say, by the time this comes out, it will be after the second episode. That's true. Yeah, and it's always stressful for me watching as someone who roots for the Asians whenever a Asian ends up on the bottom. This week we had two, and out of the four people on the bottom, one of them had immunity, so stakes were high. But the good news is all the Asians are safe, because the one who ended up going home was Roscoe, who made bad adobo. Wah-wah. I feel bad for that guy. Um, But also, he did adobo, and uh, it was not a good choice, especially when his specialty was, he's a pit master. Hello? Uh, I don't want to say only stick to what you're good at, but this is uh, definitely a challenge (laughs) where you're supposed to show yourself and i feel like that's definitely what he should have done so i mean the way top chef goes the first few rounds it's always technical mistakes usually that get you off but this guy was just a conceptual and confidence mistake so yeah yeah but he was very entertaining so i feel bad i hope he does well at uh, <laughs> i love last roscoe yeah. i know i was i hope he comes back he's he's great um he great character I think he was screwed the moment that Dale Talde was brought back as a judge and had to judge his adobo. I mean, I it also looked bad. Yeah, you can't win with bad adobo. Well, that'll do it for this inaugural edition of Go Asian, <laughs> Top Chef Portland edition. Uh, we'll be checking back on Avishar, Jamie, and Shoda as the uh, season goes on. And hopefully they'll go the distance. Hopefully we'll have an all-Asian finale. That's what I'm gunning for. Wouldn't that be something? It happens sometimes. <laughs> I think that, hap- that happens in Great British Bake Off fairly often. Yeah. All right. That's what's popping for this week. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about Nomadland. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this week's episode, we're continuing our Oscar catch-up with Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Nomadland is a 2020 American drama film edited, produced, and directed by Chloe Zhao, starring Frances McDormand as Fern, a woman living the nomadic lifestyle, traveling the United States in her van, taking on seasonal work after her husband passes away and the factory in her company town closes down. Featuring real-life nomads Linda May, Swanky, and Bob Wells as fictionalized versions of themselves, the film is based on the 2017 nonfiction book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. 
Um, it premiered at the 2020 Venice Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion Award and also won the People's Choice Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was acquired by Fox Searchlight and started streaming in February on Hulu. Um, Nomadland earned six nominations at the 2020 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. And it also received four nominations at the Golden Globes, winning Best Motion Picture Drama and Best Director, making Chloe Zhao the second woman to ever win the award and the first director of Asian descent. So the film's already gathered quite a track record and can be considered probably one of the frontrunners for the Academy Awards. Um, so Han, Jess, what do we think of Nomadland? Let's ask Jess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've gone on the record saying that I don't typically like indie movies or slow movies and definitely Nomad. Uh, Maybe like, maybe my expectation was like so like far beyond like any reasonable like reality, but I actually enjoyed this movie more than I thought I would. (laughs) It was not as slow as I thought it would been or could have been because I have definitely seen slower indie movies. Um, And I think the structure of how it's presented is very smart in that it's a kind of a series of vignettes. You don't, it sounds bad, but you don't really need to pay attention that hard to like get what's going on. And what I think is the strongest point of this story film uh, and Chloe Zhao's work in general is that it's giving such an interesting perspective or angle of a world that I don't think a lot of people know. And me as a nerd, I just love learning about things, uh, about different communities. Like I re- when I read books, like I like to read um, you know, authors who are kind of like unveiling like a different world whether that's cult and more like culturally. Not I'm not like Marvin where I like to go deep into like sci-fi like things are powered with jade and blood and the souls of dead children. Um but like, you know, books like Americana where it's like, okay, this is like the Nigerian American community and this is what it means. Or and and the Niger like what's it like in modern day Nigeria as like a young professional woman. So yeah, like this nomad world and all these characters who are played by not not professional actors, I think is the term they use. That is kind of Chloe Zhao's signature. She's so good at this, it's ridiculous. She's so good at finding these people, getting them naturally on camera, making these really sincere, beautiful moments. I think Frances McDormand is really a strong actor in the way she can anchor this as the professional actor, but being so natural. Like, you can't, you wouldn't be able to tell that you know Francis McDormand is, na- is a famous actor. And yet when you like actually watch this, you forget that. And then you can't tell that these non-actors are not acting because I've seen bad acting. We've all seen bad acting. And we've seen professional actors who couldn't do this and who are like really bad and can't read a line naturally to save their mother. Um, so that, that was all really, really fascinating to me. The fact that it all came together so well. I think, I think, I think, any one of these individual things is not necessarily that impressive. Like the story in itself, it's, you know, there's no real story. There's no real plot. There's like a general kind of thread. Um, you know, actors, non-actors being in this performance is like, okay, like that's really cool, but can you carry a whole like two hour 45 off this? And then, but like everything together is really, really effective. And then just like 
Coachella vibes, like this big open, like <laughs> lots of open desert. Maybe we've all been cooped up for so long. I hate the desert, but I was like, that's really beautiful. Like I would love to look at an open horizon right now and just travel. Um, would not want to live in a van. I'm too delicate for that. But there were some <laughs> points made that made me think, should I just sell everything and live in a van? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was definitely like a documentary feel to how this film was presented. And I think a lot of that had to do, I didn't know this was based on a nonfiction book. But after I found that out, it definitely makes sense because, you know, you're following the story of, you're not even so, you're following Frances McDormand's Fern as she goes through a year of this transient lifestyle, you know, traveling from place to place, um, taking up seasonal work and just getting by on the fringes of society. But at the same time, you're, immersed in this world right you see what van life is like you know getting permission to park in parking lots overnight pooping in the bucket and you see this much like last week's sound of metal you get introduced to this community of people that most of us probably didn't know about and you see how this community comes together and supports each other and it was really i agree like for a movie without like a central narrative driving it it was very well paced and i didn't feel like any part of the movie dragged or anything. I was actually very fascinated by the whole thing. And it's beautiful to look at, like lots of desert vistas. And yeah, I mean, you can definitely see why this film is getting a lot of praise for how it's put together. And, and you know, Chloe Zhao as the director who, you know, wrote, directed, and edited the whole thing. Like That's an amazing feat. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking about this as far as, like, it is gorgeous. I'm sure cinephiles can talk to to you know better about like the cameras and all that type of stuff uh, but it was also one of those things where you're just watching a screen where nothing is really going on and just so engrossed and fascinated uh, I think there's something about if we're comparing it to Sound of Metal that um, maybe it's Sound of Metal had a big outsider sort of storyline going where you know this guy's infiltrating um, this deaf community and so while there is a lot of like love and uh and shining a light on things there it did definitely feel like an outsider however here um even though fern is an outsider in some ways she gets embedded in that community like right away and you can tell the difference that uh chloe Zhao also did too and i think that maybe you know, whatever her magical formula is that, but it feels like there's so much honesty and respect um, in that culture uh, and how she represented them that I think that's what kind of shows through on the screen to the point where, you know, we're loving, like uh, just anything Swanky would say, I was like down <laughs> to hear and just like fascinated with her, but also, you know, like heartbroken. Um, I was warned ahead of time that it didn't have a strong narrative, you know, thread, like, whatever the point was, I think it's just what you take away from it. In a way, it is sort of a meandering, nomadic sort of filmmaking. Um, but I, of course, it's deliberately so. Like, this is not random. How she puts it together um, is deliberate. What she builds and what scene comes next. Uh, yeah, I thought it was completely gorgeous and felt it just was very honest. Um, I liked all the old people, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the nomad community that they highlighted in this film is made up of, like, elders which society has left in its wake, right? Not society, but like, capitalism, right? Like, there were cogs in the corporate machine, and they were cast aside, but they're still kind of cogs in the whole thing, right? Well, 
I was actually surprised as to how it's subtle, but or I guess it's not subtle, but it, she doesn't Chloe Zhao and like the characters she crafted with these real life nomads. She it, it's not like they're conking you over the head, but there's like various reasons why people choose to live this lifestyle, right? Um, and some of it is like economic, like so, some of us, some of the characters do feel like there was a structural failure in our like social safety net that like left these vulnerable people to decide that living in a van by themselves, like being self-sufficient was the best option. But there was also the sense of like, oh, I feel like some of these people like chose this and like did not want to participate in that like cap more capitalist exploitative system. And I feel like that's a conversation I've been having a lot with myself. And I think, you know, within the community that we've been kind of, like the very left side of Twitter has been talking about in the last year or so about like the failures of capitalism. Um, so I, I like my gut innate sense was like, you know, it was very character heavy in terms of like it was individual stories, but I did, I was surprised as to like, Oh, these are not all people who just, you know, were fucked over and decided to do this. Um, and they have different, and I'm, part of me is just like, they seem to be having a pretty good time. Yeah. Like, community and like these, you know, like I don't want to like romanticize the struggle in this sense, but at the same time, I'm like, they obviously have something that we in like houses and nine to five jobs do not have. And is that, yeah. So it's just like, are we just like trapped into that sense of like, this is what we want? Should we all be aspiring to live <laughs> nomadic lives? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the film itself doesn't make any moral judgments on the nomadic lifestyle. I mean, it, it does show you what people outside of the community think about it. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't make a judgment on whether or not this lifestyle is good or bad or like something to be pitied, right? Everyone, all the characters in this film are strong and like of conviction, right? They, they know what they want and they make their own decisions. And I mean, Fern herself, uh, Frances McDormand's character, she gets multiple chances to like get out of the lifestyle and she makes it clear that it's her decision to be on the road. It's not because she has to, it's because she wants to. And even, you know, when Davis Ritherin's very sweet Dave, you know, gives her a, a home to stay in, like she decides, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep moving. I'm gonna go back to work for Amazon for the winter and and move on with my life. Yeah. I I, I think of it a little bit when I think at some point my mom was saying that my brother wanted to get her a house or something like that. And she was like, but then he would be my landlord. And I was just like, oh, oh, I see where you're going with this. And so that's why she lives in an apartment because she would rather pay her own rent and have her own space and not be dictated to as far as like how she sets up house and what she does. Um, she wants to be independent. And, and so that's one of the reasons why the pandemic, you know, has been hard on her because she's used to doing whatever the hell she wants. Um, and but I did think of her when I saw Frances McDormand's fern sleeping in her van when it was getting very cold because that was like very much what happened in Texas during the freeze. But uh, I, I thought when we we're talking about the no judgments, I thought it was interesting that they did feature Amazon as an employer here so we can still probably criticize amazon as far as like 
these sort of just seasonal one-off workers. Why don't you just pay people full time and give them benefits and all this other stuff? But at the same time, in a way, it's almost like a boon that she's able to go to Amazon a few times. And then another time she works at a diner and just, I don't know. It's like, do I support this? But I, it, it was fascinating to me to see that. And that apparently Amazon also temporarily paid for like the campgrounds that she was you know, working in or uh, squatting in for a little bit. There was just so much in there that I didn't know what was going on as far as like how this is set up and are all these other people being used that way too, that they can't rely on Amazon for like <laughs> work. But then how did Chloe also get their permission? Like, were they fine with this? You know, <laughs> So there's so many questions. I needed to read some interviews now because I've been making sure not to read things about the film until I saw it. Yeah, I mean... I just visited the Amazon Fresh store at in Whittier this past weekend. It's my first time to one in the in California. And, you know, looking around, it wasn't anything special. I mean, it's like a less fancy Whole Foods. But looking around at, at all the Amazon employees, like picking fruit for their shopping orders. And I was just thinking, man, I know Amazon, the end goal is like the Wally world of like everything being automated. But we are so far from that. And, you know, watching this film reminded me of, yeah, like, all those same day orders that you're getting um, from Amazon, some person is still packing those. Some person is still like, there are still people going around doing jobs that maybe one day will, will, will be replaced by drones and machines. But right now, it's still manual labor that needs to be done by someone. This was oddly, I don't know why, but I mean, I'm hoping I'm not living in a van, but I did feel like it might be a, a vision of my future as far as like, <laughs> I don't know. If I'm going to be married, I don't know if I'm going to have like other family around me. Will I go back to Texas and be around like the younger generation, my nieces and nephews? I don't know what will happen when I'm older. And I, you know, I've always kind of liked the idea of the RV life. So um, that is still an option as long as I've as I have Wi-Fi, you know, like right now I could do that and um, still work. But uh, of course. The other thing we should note is <laughs> all these people are white <laughs> that we see. Yes. Uh, and so, of course, me traveling alone through the country sounds pretty dangerous, especially right now. Yes. So it, it is one of those where I'm like, uh, I probably need to be married. Probably need to be married by, you know, hopefully someone big enough that will scare people off. But even then, it's like it doesn't mean we won't be like targeted. Uh, so, yeah, all these things that are just I think are interesting. I still would love temporarily to do a nomadic lifestyle. Maybe it'd be. Yeah. I think if it's temporary. <laughs> yes, I temporary. Mean, here's the thing. I think if it's a choice, if it's your choice and you have other options, but this is what you choose to do. And if you, and if you, it's, you know, temporary, you have the option. For, like if the choices are always there and you just continue to do nomadic life, like that's great. More power to you. That sounds like you're living the life you want. But I think the larger conversation is like, you know, some people are forced to do this for survival. Um, there's also the opposite side of the spectrum of like very wealthy, privileged people, some, a lot of them being in our generation, right? Like a, being a quote nomad, um, a digital nomad, right? We've all heard this term. So it's like movement and this freedom of movement is either an indicator of extreme privilege or like extreme like lack of privilege. Yeah. And that's just fascinating to me because I know a lot of my friends who work, we know, 
and, and we can't fault them. It's like your <laughs> when you're an immigrant and you want to fuck capitalism, but your parents are immigrants and they came over here and sacrificed so you could get like a well-paying job. You're like, I'm going to get a well-paying job. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of friends who work tech, who um, whose companies, Fortune 5 companies have gone work from home and are probably going to stay work from home. And they're, you know, all talking about like, where, you know, should we just move somewhere? Like, should we go to Hawaii, which is a whole other conversation I like do not want to have right now with them because I love my friends, but that's some real colonizer bullshit. <laughs> um, and, you know, or they're like, oh, they're like traveling very free. Like, oh, I'm, you know, a week in my parents, like I'm going to go like work, you know, in the Bay or then I'm going to go here or into the even more extreme side, you know, those like that, those creepy like TikTok videos with like all those white people in like Guatemala at that like eco retreat. Have you seen those? No. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's TikTok, a whole so. like, there's like a whole expat community of like white professionals who go work remote in like beautiful, cheap, exploited slash colonized countries like Bali or Vietnam or. Mm-hmm. Guatemala or Costa Rica. So, and they also call themselves kind of like this. They they also romanticize this like nomadic lifestyle. So, yeah, it's just really interesting to me how that freedom is just on opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, the film definitely has a melancholic tone to it, being that it depicts the decline of like the American dream. And, you know, we all live in Los Angeles, which is a metropolitan city you know, with multiple industries. So if a factory fails or closes, it's not going to tank our economy. But all around the nation, there are towns like um, Empire, Nevada, where Fern is from, where that one factory employs the entire town. If that factory shuts down, where did the people go? Like, what do you do? And to me, thinking about the implications of that, thinking about the failures of what capitalism, like extractive capitalism has on places. I mean, that's totally yeah. on capitalism, right? Because there's an incentive to not invest in the community in other ways or give them options when your whole like an mm. industry is based on like one industry, one mine, one production plant. And you know, and and especially when you talk about like unionization and um, you know, a lot of these older production plants were unionized or union yeah. and so you can make a good living even if it was tough. And now, like, you know, the, but the Amazons don't even, <laughs> they're trying to union bust, which is so legal. But, you know, there's a lot of work now that they're fighting very hard to not let you unionize, not mm-hmm. let you, prevent you from unionizing. Mm-hmm. They technically can't stop you from letting you. That's, but you get what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I mean, yeah, that's also some capitalist bullshit. And uh, it's just so depressing. <laughs> I don't know if this movie, like, brings me hope as to, like, oh, there are, even in spite of this like looming monster, there are people and there's community to be found or it's just like, what's the point? Because it's going <laughs> to eat you up and spit you out and good luck. I mean, one thing that Chloe Zhao does really well is highlight these like communities in the margins of Americana, right? Like her first two films focused on like native communities. And you know, this one focuses on this community of nomadic elders, which I'm, I'm curious because her next big project is going to be Marvel's The Eternals, which is like a big blockbuster movie. So I'm curious what her sensibilities will bring to like a big budget comic book film. I hope a lot of humanity. This is something that I'm like, I feel in some ways that Marvel films has done better 
than DC when it comes to characterizations. Um, and even when it's stuffed with 20 billion people, sometimes, you know, you're just like, because you saw them in other films and got to know them first there, then you still have that affection for them. So I'm really hoping that with uh, with her, like, I don't know, talent at drawing characters out and creating just these moments, I hope we could get a lot of that. Because, you know, who knew? I mean, we, we expected something funny, but like when Taika... Waititi did his film, you know, but and then oh yeah, he put a stamp on it, and it was definitely a Taika film. So I have faith that I think they see something, you know, here, kind of just like when it came to whatever the Harley Quinn movie, you know, that and, worked out. <laughs> I mean, Taika also was able to turn a Marvel movie, a threequel, right, <laughs> let alone a threequel, into a subversive movie about the evils of colonization and what you have to do <laughs> narratively to genocide a people and like most people didn't even realize it yeah i'm like you go Tyke. I, yeah. I, have, I have faith so I'm, I'm excited i'm super curious because because chloe Zhao is known for her like rounded portrayals and character studies and the eternals is like a story about cosmic beings it's like the most existential marvel has but ever it's been cosmic beings who are immortal and have seen humanity over seven thousand years which is <laughs> actually perfect a perfect project for her and i sorry i just googled it and i realized that both rob stark and john snow are in this mm. movie and i'm not going to be able to tell them i'm gonna be so <laughs> fucking confused that's so funny because i actually like am attracted to one but not the other so i know the difference <laughs> but are you, are you into john snow no, or into no rob stark i rob and, stark. and i hate okay. to say this a lot of it is based on interviewing them so <laughs> I'm not the little the little gray streak he has now is just like has added yeah like I mean eons of attractiveness. I have a little streak. Not I have a little I, white I, hair I, okay, no Marvin, stop trying to <laughs> stop trying to sit with Rob Stark. You can't sit with him. Yeah, I also get confused because like British acting community is even smaller than Hollywood, and they all date each other. So I know that like Rob Stark dated like Jenna, Jenna Coleman. Coleman, who was in. You know, Doctor Who. Doctor Who, who Karen Gillian was also in Doctor Who, and then but then she dated like Matt Smith. No, she didn't no. date Matt Smith. Someone else dated Matt Smith. <laughs> it's like they all just date each other because everyone's hot. And I'm like, good. But I'm you know, John, jealous. Of you, you know, Jon Snow stuck with Rose Leslie the whole time. Yes, they are married. Is a very Egret, cute. Yeah, um, Egret and Jon Snow. They they had their happily ever after outside of Game of Thrones, and they have a baby now. Yes, they have a baby. Yes. We'll British. This is another one of my spirals. Yeah. Um, anyway, I also went into a spiral at one point about van living. This is before I watched Nomadland, and like I had a lot of these things. But this was like gentrified van living, where like people were like tricking out their vans. It's very nice. Like everything's wood. It looks like a Muji store inside. Um. So not like Nomad van <laughs> man Nomadland van living, and they you know this is still like a subsection of like social media tiktok van life like these young people who will buy a van and then remodel it but like the remodeling like cost basically the same as like a down payment on a house somewhere wow and i'm like oh so what's... you're choosing this you're choosing this yeah like what's the i mean the choice is yeah. not roughing it the choice is being on the move so mm. yeah so again, it's this privilege, extreme privilege or lack of privilege because mm -hmm. the people who choose to be on the move and then there's probably a safety net where they can just oh, totally. re-enter life, you know, like even if they've been gone a year, right? Like people who are working 
these seasonal most most of these people working seasonal jobs like survival jobs like they can't just like stop working for a year and like plug back into like some kind of existing life um and yeah it is interesting because she doesn't have like any kids right Mm -hmm. that was a very as someone who as a woman who does not plan to have any kids of her own that's also like very interesting kind of what does that life look like when you're older because you're told from a certain you know you're told from the beginning that you're like no to live your life a certain way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i've just like in this last year i've realized like everything people tell you is just bullshit like no one knows what the <laughs> fuck is going on so like just think about everything and don't give a shit and like do what you want and if you want to live in the van that's great if you don't want to live in the van but that's the only way you can survive that's really sad yeah all right and i think that's where we'll call it for this discussion of chloe zhao's nomad land let us know if you have any thoughts on the film which is available for streaming now on hulu um jess Hunt, thanks so much once again for the great conversation if people want to follow your thoughts on social media where can they go i'm on twitter at just you tweets and i am at anonymous you can follow me at Marvin Yeo. You can follow our show at Good Pop Club and check out our past episodes by going to the website goodpop.club. Um, Good Pop is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-hosted podcasts. You can check out our fellow shows by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, that will do it for episode 50 of the Good Pop Culture Club. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 